good to be here. Um, not going to hold up much time because we have so much food in the back. We want to get to that. Um, but just a little bit before I talk about what we're going to go into, this was probably another hard scripture um, for me to um, study um, because it kind of touched some places in my own heart um, with seeking understanding, seeking knowledge, seeking God. And this was like really convicting for me. Hopefully it can be uh, something uh, good for you. But on the other hand, um, every Wednesday, Dennis and I um, get coffee and we talk about ministry, we talk about personal life. Um, and this Wednesday, he was discussing that, um, yeah, um, I'm going through all this stuff and I'm also preparing a sermon for Wednesday. And I was like, wait, I'm preparing a sermon for this Wednesday. <laughs> what are you talking about? So it is not Dennis' turn to preach, it is my turn. So I'm glad to bring you God's word to you this morning. <laughs> Um, my name is uh, Shaq. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City, and uh, I am just so overjoyed to bring God's truth to you this morning. Um, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. Mark gives his readers great detail about his last days. Soon Jesus will share his last meal with his disciples, be arrested be brought to trial by both Jewish and Roman authorities and then crucified on the cross. But right now, Jesus is in the middle of this week. After Jesus speaks his parable of the tenant farmers who beat up the managers and kill his son, the religious leaders interpret this as a parable against them. So they wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't achieve this mission without evidence. They must catch Jesus in the teaching that depicts blasphemy. So they confronted, harassed, and plotted against Jesus with shrewd questions to trap him. The Herodians and Pharisees tested him on taxation laws. And the Sadducees tested him on the marriage at the resurrection. But Jesus answered them all perfectly. After each one of these religious groups try to trap Jesus, we arrive at another encounter with the teacher of the law who overhears the debate between Jesus and the Sadducees. So beginning at the 28th verse of Mark 12, Mark tells us this. So you can look to the screens. This is from NIV. He says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. It went off. I'm keep saying it. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. Would you?
You are right. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from there on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. And then um, we'll lead. It's coming in. Coming in. You pray and I'll do this. I'll pray. That's it. Let's just enter into a moment of silence, and then I'll lead us in some time of prayer. Jesus, we, we come before you today. God, we lay down ourselves before you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, we ask that your, your words would permeate truth within us. God, we pray that you would push back the darkness in this space. And God, I pray that you help us understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so this incident with Jesus and this Pharisee is somewhat positive of all the other encounters Jesus had, Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees. This particular scribe had been listening to Jesus discuss theology with Jewish leaders, and he was impressed with Jesus' answer. He was like, man, this dude is killing it. So with curiosity, he asked Jesus the most fundamental and chief question of all. The scribe asks, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The scribe was either genuinely interested in Jesus' answer. Well, that's one option. The second option is he's trying to get Jesus to reveal his political commitments. Or he's testing if Jesus would show disregard for some area of the law of Moses. Now, if we were living in ancient Palestine, this question of commandments was common and would be the central question of rabbinic discussion. So to show you, so to give some insight on the commandments, there were 613 commandments. Let me say that number again. There were 613 commandments in all. And the rabbis counted them. 365 were negative, and 248 were positive. Some commands were light, making less demands, while others were heavy with repercussions of disobedience. Can you imagine if you come into church, Garden City, and Dennis or myself say, oh, you broke number 99, go back home. This was... This was a, a, a huge motivator to identify who belonged in the kingdom of God, in the community of Israel. And they used this over and over and over again. 613 commandments. That is a lot. A lot to follow. But Jesus does not ignore the question. He does not say, how did you get that number? He does not ignore it, but he responds to scriptural tradition by first reciting the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. And for those who don't know what the Shema is, 
here's something that can help you. It's a liturgical prayer prominent in Jewish history and tradition, which is recited daily, morning and evening services. They would express this kind of prayer to affirm God's singularity and kingship over all the cosmos and everything in between. They would say this over and over and over. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. Now, why does Jesus start here? It's a big question when I was studying this. Like, why does he start here? See, whatever the greatest commandment is, it starts with God. We cannot engage with it without recognizing first that there is a true living and unifying God. So this faith statement of the Shema, of this prayer, is followed up with the charge to love the Lord your God with everything. It's what Jesus goes on and says to describe, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What Jesus is doing here is, re is reminding the scribe, including us, that we should love God with everything we have available to honor him. Everything. Our thoughts. Our hungers. Our feelings. Our passions. Our work. Our children. Everything we have available to honor God. I will admit when, this, when I read this commandment, it often feels like white noise, right? I heard Miss Karen up here repeating me as I was uh, saying the scripture. Like intellectually, I, I know it is, is, it is important to live out. I know it is important to love the Lord to God with all my heart, mind, and strength. And yet I still struggle to understand how to love God with every part of my being. Every part of my being. My inability to fulfill the great commandment of loving God by myself always feels expansive and burdensome. It's like, oh, I have to do this to please God. I don't know about you, but I feel that a lot. So just like us, the scribe knew God's law, but he still had trouble understanding the mobility of God's commandments. One interesting aspect of this story that Jesus adds something to it. He adds, love the Lord God with all your mind. It's not found in the Deuteronomy ch uh, chapter, but Jesus adds, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. There's no coincidence that Jesus places that here with the religious leaders who were overzealous about God's law. By saying this, the love the Lord your God with all your mind, God is saying, I want you to do this. I want you to love me with your mind. I, I don't want you to determine, you to determine what is right. I want to affirm what I think is right. And this is me explaining to you to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Mark is, in this kind of scripture here, Mark is beginning to set up a narrative to expose the heart of the Jewish religious system, which we'll get to later, about loving the Lord God with their mind. The scribe has asked the first and important question, but Jesus suddenly adds the second one. And it's connected to Leviticus 19.18 about an obligation to a neighbor. 
He says, love the Lord. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, when we look at this commandment, we can kind of feel some dullness. We can kind of be familiar with this scripture because we know it. We can bring it back to mind. But if we carefully read the passage in Leviticus 19, it expresses a greater word. A word that is saturated with conviction and responsibility. It's a list of commandments to keep and their leaders from exploiting the weak and the poor. The list includes this. I'll read it off. One, leave food for the hungry and the field gleaning. Do not steal, lie, or profane God. Do not oppress your neighbor, exploit employees, or discriminate against the disabled. Do no injustice or show partiality in judgment, slander, or witness against your neighbor. This was a list to help them. Again, this was a list to help them from not exploiting the weak and the poor. And Jesus goes on to say at the end of it, I am the Lord. Jesus was ushering his people to restore, share peace and love within the community of Israel and beyond. See, loving one neighbor is equivalent to showing reverence for God. We rarely think about loving our neighbor that way. We think of it as a way of doing good deeds or a way of just extending ourselves to other people and getting tired of doing that. But Jesus is saying that when we love our neighbor, it is equivalent to showing reverence to God. Jesus is saying there is no love of God except through a love of the neighbor. However, according to Mark's narrative, these Levitical commands were violated consistently by the dominant Jewish social groups, especially the scribes. These weren't ordinary people. These were God's people, God's chosen people, and they were violating the law of God. I'm pretty sure it was in that 613 list where they just saw it like, neighbor, uh, let's go to the next one. Stay close to the word of God. But this was a perfect time for the scribes to antagonize Jesus for attacking the Jewish religious system. Surprisingly, this does not happen. As we read it, the scribe agrees with Jesus, wholeheartedly with Jesus, and declares, well said, teacher, you are right about such things. To show that they are having a real conversation and not a gotcha session, the scribe continues the conversation by taking a step further, by adding a proper interpretation to obedience over the temple. The scribe says, these commands are more important than all offerings, burnt offerings and sacrifices. I want us to kind of sit with that for a minute. This is quite a declaration by the scribe and runs counter to the mindset of Jewish hierarchy. It's a protest of individualism and greed. It tells them that his love for God and his neighbor is more important than a sacrifice offered in the temple. Again, if we know about the temple, they were receiving money from the temple. 
So this scribe is telling Jesus that it is important to love God and our neighbor more than receiving money from the temple, receiving things from the system that they benefited from. Now Jesus, the conversation turns back to Jesus. Jesus recognizes that the scribe answer wisely. The word wise in Greek translation is the root word for mind. Now you're probably wondering why am I using that term? Am I just using Greek for the sake of Greek? Am I using it to one-up you? Um, to let you know I am not because I'm not fluent in Greek or Hebrew. Um, <laughs> just to let you know. But it reveals that the scribe was only able to understand what it means to follow God intellectually. It was considered a good old-fashioned memory verse. For an example, many of us know those Christian questions and we respond back with a Christian answer. And we have no understanding on our question. We say, hey, how's your faith doing with Jesus? Oh, it's going well. I'm doing my Bible study. I'm doing all these things. But really, we have no connection to our answer. This is what's going on here. He gave Jesus the right answer. He understood the orthodox of God, which is right thinking, but misses the inseparable mark of orthopraxy, which is right action. He knew what it means to follow God with his mind, but he didn't know how to love God with his hands. Their interaction ends with Jesus asserting that the scribe is not far from the kingdom. Again, when I was reading this, I was, I was very interested and even confused by this statement. I had so many questions in Jesus' response. Some of the questions were, is, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus rejecting the possibility of scribal discipleship? Why does not Jesus invite the scribe in completely? This is his chance to be a disciple. He is so close to the kingdom of God, why is Jesus not inviting him in? What Jesus is suggesting here is a protest that orthodox, which is right thinking, is not enough. It must be accompanied by a practice of love and justice for one's neighbor. There must be a balance between right thinking and right action. One cannot be superior over the other. So again, the, the scribe is living near the kingdom. He is not living in the kingdom. If the scribe chooses to embrace the kingdom that Jesus extends, he may either need to reject a system that oppresses or completely stop being a scribe within it. Again, this is hard for him to do this. I'm pretty sure it is hard for scribes who are receiving so much influence and power, he must need to reject a system that oppresses or completely stop being a scribe within it. The many debates between Jesus and the religious leaders end here with the declaration of Jesus saying, and from there on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus is like, drop the mic. It's like Jesus, the, the one who rode 
on a donkey turned over the tables in the temple, went nose to nose with political leaders and, to intel and, and the intellectuals. In the end, he silenced his social and political components, opponents, and did it on their own turf, the temple courts. Jesus won. Now, how does this relate to us? How does this relate to everyday life that we live in? Here's what I can offer you. Hopefully this, this application can help you. The many ways people talk about division in a church are along the fine lines of two things. Right thinking and right action which is orthodox and orthopraxy. One emphasizes right beliefs while the other emphasizes right actions. One magnifies theology and the other magnifies theology of good works. One wants to be assured you are confessing the correct beliefs and the other wants to be assured you are, you are doing the correct pro-social behavior. And when we see that, it's easy for us to categorize those who elevate right thinking as people who don't care about what you do. And those who elevate right action as people who don't care about what you believe. It is rather that we always have an impulse to praise one as slightly more important than the other. We may say we hold these two equally, and for the most part we do, but undoubtedly we prioritize what we think works best. We either want people to first believe the right things, then they can have the right behaviors, which then can solidify their belonging in a church. Or we want people to do the right behavior, then they will have the right beliefs, which will solidify their belonging in the church. I don't know about you, but these two unseen stresses of rightness is always exhausting and daunting to overcome. Should I do this? Should I have right thinking? Should I have right action? Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know about you. Do you feel the stressors of leaning on both of the sides of like, oh, I got to have the right doctrine. I got to have the right action. And each group is contingent upon which first response is the right response. But the irony is that both approaches are more closer than they realize. It's like the powerful words of Jesus when he says to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But the struggle is that both camps are correct. And yet, both miss the mark. Both will always come up short. Having the right doctrine is not enough to acquire a seat of belonging. Having the right action is not enough to acquire a seat of belonging. The seat of belonging begins with love. It's a very vague term, love. We don't like to use that word no more in church. But it's love. It's not your ability to save the world, to be have this impulse to be always justiceful or just towards our neighbor or I have to interpret the whole Bible to understand God. 
It's not where we should start from. But we should start from the seat of belonging. The pursuit of love is what holds right doctrine and right action together. If our church simply concentrates on justice for our neighbor, delivers sound sermons, sing good songs, gather faithfully in community with one another without love, we gain nothing. We gain nothing. We can do all this stuff in our community. We can give good sermons. We can sing good songs. We can gather together and eat food. If we don't love, we gain nothing. Paul says it better than I can. He says this. If we speak in the tongues of man or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mystery of knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can become accidental Pharisees. We can become accidental zealots if we're not careful. If we start from true belonging, we can do both better. We can love God's word and we can love our neighbor better if we start from the true seat of belonging. This is what the Pharisees lost. They lost love. They came so overzealous about doing God's work. They came overzealous by knowing God's truth and what they were missing was love. The author of Benjamin, the author Benjamin L. Corey said it best in his book, Moving Beyond Fear-Based Faith. He says this, right thinking and right doing are both important and are both things that Jesus spoke to. But I no longer believe that either of these things belong in the center of our circles. I think that both should be reserved for the exact representation of love. Jesus, by erasing my central pursuit of orthodox and orthopraxy and replacing it with Jesus, the essence of love, I realized that perhaps Jesus was inviting us to pursue something even more better than right thinking or right doing he was inviting us to pursue a heart that is constantly increasing in its capacity to love. So I'll leave you with this question. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of heart. In what ways have right doing and right thinking have become more important to you than belonging to God? In what ways have you put right thinking and right doing above your natural seat of belonging over God? That's a question I'm still figuring out myself. 
So again, in what ways have right doing, right thinking, have become more important to you than belonging to God? Let's pray. Father, there is so much need in the world. And your desire is for us to respond and partner with you. God, there is so much knowledge in the world of you. And your desire is for us to know you. But God, sometimes it is overwhelming and daunting. And God, we can fight for these things. We can defend them. But God, sometimes we miss the main thing. The main thing is love. The main thing is that we belong to you regardless of our abilities to understand you. Regardless of our good works, God. It is you who calls us to love. So God, as we move throughout our week this week, recall to us the truths and the promises of belonging. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.